When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I do wonder how much of it was scripted. Yeah. How many, what, were there pages on set? Was he, was it just complete improvisation? Would he just turn up and say, well, this is what I'm going through at this point in my life and I'm just going to pump it into the films uh, yeah, and just put it on question. the screen? I don't want, I want, I'd be interested to know like how much of it was scripted and how much of it was just on the hoof. Yeah. It's a zero. It's an eight. It's episode 108. Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of Flixwater Podcast. We are joined today by Matt. Hello. And Niran. Hello. I thought you were going to do a bra bra bra. Bra bra bra. <laughs> Yay! That moment's gone now. Yeah. <laughs> move on smoothly. <laughs> and Helen. Hello. And we're going to be talking about the other side of the wind. As always, guys, we have all the show notes online at flixwatcher.tv for all the episodes. So please come and visit us there. Of course, join us on Twitter at flixwatcherpod. And please come to iTunes, rate us, and subscribe. All films featured in the podcast were available to stream on Netflix UK at the time of recording. And please be aware there will be spoilers and some language that may offend. Hello and welcome to this episode of Flix Watch Podcast. In our studio today, we have Matt and Erin. If you would like to say hello to our lovely listeners and tell them about the work that you do, please. Hi, uh, my name is Matt Whitecross. I am a director and a bit of a jack of all trades, a director, editor, writer, uh, anything. I'll come in and have a look at your radiator if you want. But I, I how, basically, how much do you charge for radiator repair? Radiator, well, nothing. I've never uh, done it before. So I'll, 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 I'm, I'm still learning. But I, but yeah, I'm kind of, um, I, I direct, mostly I've done, uh, I started in drama and then I've moved more into documentary more recently for various reasons. And the last couple of things I did, we did a film about uh, Oasis called Supersonic and one about Coldplay called A Head for the Dreams. And just we're working on a boxing doc. Yeah, yeah the only tiny ones, that's it. Just to help them out to see if they can, you know, because it's hard out there. So I've seen both Supersonic and Head Full of Dreams. I, I think I, I met you after the Q&A with uh, Supersonic at the Prince uh, Pitch House. Yes. Um, because my first band that I ever saw live was Oasis at Main Road. I'm from Manchester. Yep. So um, you had to, you had to. I love, I love Oasis, the first few albums. Um, but the thing about the Coldplay one, which really gets me, which really interests me, is the fact you started recording them from before they became Coldplay. Right. Which is kind of insane. Yes, it was. It was insane. I didn't expect them to become Coldplay. Yeah. So that, I filmed them before they were in a band. So I, I'm either massively clairvoyant and clever, or just very lucky. But they were like your student uni band, weren't they? Yeah. Your university. Yeah. They were like the student uni band. So yeah, we just knew them and just mates at uni and we just hang out. out. Yeah, it was very weird. It still feels surreal in a kind of way that I think I'm, I'm stuck in some kind of drug coma, <laughs> and someone's going to wake up and go, no, no, they didn't make it. Because it's very strange that we would have all still been hanging out 20 years later, but. But somehow we are. And and luckily, 
For 20 years, they said, we're not interested in making a film. And then they finally cracked. Just after I'd made another film about another band. And yeah. I was like, I don't ever want to do that again. <laughs> you know, but yeah. So, and, and I'm doing a, a boxing documentary at the moment. Cool. Which I'm not allowed to talk about. But oh, what makes you um, change between the drama side and the, or the fictional or fictionalized, I should say, talking about, about things like Spike Island right. versus uh, the documentary side of things? Just, I just love trying new things, really. Sure. And so I, when I met Iran, actually, we were both doing bits of music video uh, stuff and we ended up directing some together. And then, you know, some commercials. And, and at the same time, I was always trying to do dramas. That was always the idea. But I got a chance to do documentaries with Michael Winterbottom. Mm. And I, I got the bug. And what's lovely is, well, it depends on how you look at it. But every time I finish a drama, I'm like, I never want to see another actor again in my life. <laughs> and every time... I do a documentary. It's like, that's it. That's enough reality. I, I want to move on to, I want to sit down. Someone bring me a nice cup of tea, spend 20 hours rigging a light or whatever it is. But yeah, so, I, you know, each time, and, and hopefully you take some of the ideas and techniques from documentary and you use them on, on, and vice versa kind of thing. It's quite interesting. There's not that many directors, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure about your background in, in documentary side of things around, but not that many directors do both sides of things, but there are a few prominent ones like Kevin McDonald, right. Michael Winterbottom, yeah. Bart Layton's just an American Animals after Imposter, and now he's, doing the Bond film now, isn't it? And it seems like maybe it's a British niche. of. Uh... Yeah, I don't, I don't know what it is. I mean, I just feel like, yeah, I think if you're clever and you know what you're doing, you stick to one kind of path. And, yeah. you know, if you're a commercials director, you, you just go along that route and you become the best in the world. But if you're an idiot like me, you just do anything that's interesting. If you're an idiot. Yeah, and so I, <laughs> I, but I just, every time I do a documentary, I was... I don't know, it's, I, find, I find real life fascinating. And I think, and the other thing was um, you ended up on the, on, with Supersonic. We were supposed to be doing a, a TV show for Channel 4, like a, a drama about the miners' strike. And then they, there's a change of management as there tends to be every couple of weeks in most uh, broadcasting places. And, and it was one of those things like that no one was really interested in it anymore. And that landed on my lap. The Oasis film landed on my lap. And we were about to have our first kid. And it was something like, actually, this might be some way of grasping back normality because you can more or less have a kind of nine to seven existence <laughs> on a on a film which you can't you know you can't do that uh, in drama yeah not that that's the reason to do any film but i was just like oh god this is this is weird when we started doing it it was like i'm having a normal job i go to an office and i sit down and i can see my kids i can put them to bed that was definitely a good thing but also too. the first film that you made the road to guantanamo was kind of half fiction half documentary isn't it with Riz Ahmed yeah so it was kind of that was like your introduction into film wasn't it it was kind of like right yeah between the two I guess when I first met you in the midst of making the road to Guantanamo that's right yeah yeah no that, that was it I mean I think there was something appealing about shooting reconstructions and then having the, the documentary side of it and having kind of potentially unreliable narrators and and I mean that's partly what we're going to go on and talk about with this film sure. uh, the other side of the wind but I, I really for me I, I love the fact that there's so many different techniques out there that you can use and I feel like even now, 100 years on from the beginning of cinema, we're really, really scratching the surface of it. But because it's so expensive and because people get used to what they like and they kind of just want the same, I think it's experimental film kind of, you know, experimental films like this one that we're going to talk about just it ended up being very niche rather than being the future. So I find that, yeah, so I, I, there's something lovely about being able to kind of wrong foot yourself and also keep it interesting because I think if you just regurgitate the same thing every time, I would get bored. Well, this isn't the same thing. Let's talk to Iran for a second uh, before getting on to the, the other side of the wind. Um, you talked about Expensive and Riz Ahmed and tell us about your first film, Shifty, because that, that was neither... Well, that has Riz Ahmed. It wasn't really expensive or with a low budget. No, it was a shot Shifty for 100 grand, shot it in 17 days. But that's how we both started out. I was uh, working as a, an assistant director on 
Matt's girlfriend at the time's movie called Life and Lyrics, which was like, um, which had Ashley Waters. Do you remember Ashley Waters, yeah, the rapper from So Solid Crew? Asher D, yeah, yeah, from So Solid Crew. And um, <laughs> that's how me and Matt met, didn't we? We ended up directing his first music video off his, fir- off his first album. Okay. And me and Matt co-directed it together. And then we ended up setting up a company with Ben Pugh and Rory Aitken and we set up a company called Between the Eyes where we used to make music videos and commercials and me and you have directed Take That videos together and then we've gone off our separate ways and we're doing other videos. But I met Riz through you, didn't I? Because you were doing Road to Guantanamo at the time. We then went and directed his music video, Post 9-11 Blues, which is like this quite controversial Riz Ahmed did, which got banned by the BBC. Nice. And um, I'd written Shifty and you said to me, Hey, you should put Riz Ahmed in Shifty. And I was like, oh, I don't did know. I? Yeah, I was like, hey, I don't know if he's right for it. I was like, and I was like, because he he's not threatening in person, Riz, is he? He's quite sort of a soft, Your character. yeah, well mannered, yeah. and you know, he's kind of he's he's slight, and <clears throat> and then we auditioned him, and he just blew everyone out of the park, and we kind of uh, and and I never got. Commission. And then whatever happened to Riz Ahmed? Was, oh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then, the I put, and then I put him forward for Star Wars, and I put him for yeah, but they never they never got back to me on that. Either. I don't no. know what happened with that one. But yeah, my route was through a similar sort of route to Matt's. I came up through being a runner and an AD and then um, directed commercials for like Nike and Coca-Cola and did music videos. And then me and Matt were co-directing. And then we sort of both went our separate ways and I made my first film, Shifty. Mm. And then my second film, Welcome to the Punch, like produced by Ridley Scott, which was more like a sort of kind of bigger London-based action movie. And then um, I've sort of stayed in that vein. But I also make uh, good money being a writer. Yeah. So I just wrote The Killer for John Woo. And oh, nice. I spent a last year in LA writing a TV show for Netflix, a sequel to Layer Cake called Viva La Madness with Jason Statham. And I was like over there for a year doing that for Sky Atlantic and Netflix. And so I got, yeah. So you um, know all about the Netflix kind of realm of things. Yeah. I've actually worked so. within the system of Netflix, been in yeah. their offices, done note meetings with Netflix, kind of been through the whole process. Because um, it might, you might give us some insight as to how films like going back to yourself, Matt, the other side of the wind um, come about. So if you can give us Matt a, well, tell us why you chose this film and give us like a, a two-minute synopsis of it. Well, I first heard about this film probably about twenty-five years ago. Mm. So I like like Iran, like a lot of people who listen to this, probably like both of you. I was obsessed with film from a really early age, but it wasn't. I think now things are much more easily accessible, but back then. If you'd heard about something, the only way to see it was, it was in the cinema or it was on TV one particular night and you'd have to sit there trying to record it or work the control and stay up to two in the morning and try and miss, skip the ads. And there was a documentary about Orson Welles who was already one of my favourite, if not my favourite, director. And I'd heard, I heard this thing was going to be on this documentary. So there was an interview with him and then they showed these clips from this film uh, that he'd never actually got a chance to finish. It'd been, it got complicated legally. They'd lost all their money. They lost their cast. Everything that could possibly go wrong went wrong. And they showed a couple of clips and they looked like the most amazing film you'd ever seen. And they said, what a tragedy that it's never going to be seen. It's never going to be finished. And now he's dead. And, and that was it. And I just, I went and sought, sought out as many of his other films as I could see. And then every five, ten years or so, you'd hear, oh yeah, apparently they've sorted out all the legal side of things or the financial things has been sorted out. Um, so that's, so it's going to come out and then nothing would happen. And then they suddenly released it last year, Netflix. I'm not 100% sure at what point they got involved, but I think they basically sorted things out through, I guess, a passion of, uh, about film and through money. And they sorted all those issues out. And so I, I, I and it premiered at Cannes last year. Now, I was so desperate. Like, the second I heard it was happening, I was like, I've got to see it, I've got to see it. And then part of the nature of, I guess, having young kids and also being with someone who's like, you don't necessarily share the same taste in films. Every time I've suggested it, everyone's like, mm, yeah, maybe. 
and it never happens. And I've been desperate. And he's so I think if you put a gun against my head and said, you've got to choose one director above everyone, obviously I'd choose awesome. Iran. <laughs> but, but if they said you get two. I, know I would obviously choose you. <laughs> Just get that out of the way. Get your hand off my knee. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, yeah, my daughter said that uh, ballet thing the other day, she was like, who do you think was best? Don't just say me. And I was like, I wasn't going to say you, actually. Um, but basically, they... Yeah, so so he's, he's my favourite director, probably. And um, so I, I wanted to see it, but I wanted to see it in the right environment. And I tried to see it at the cinema, but it wasn't at the cinema. And then I thought, look, I need a reason. And when we talked about what film I might choose, I was like, it's got to be that one, because it'll force me to do it. And I've got a week before we're meeting, and it's great. And my wife's actually away in Nigeria, so I've got the kids, but I put them to bed and I do it. And of course, I ended up watching it for the first time last night like an idiot. And I, I but it was, um, yeah, it is a very, very unusual film. <laughs> uh, in but, a good way, I think. You you all might disagree. It's not his best film, I wouldn't say. I don't know if even if it is his film, because mm. apparently he only 30% of it was finished by the time that everyone else started on it. But they've tried to stay true to his vision. So it's a very difficult thing to describe. So basically... Is that for right? people, Only 30% of it was shot and finished? Was that, well, so all of it was shot Right. But only 30% of it was, was edited together. Was edited right, okay. together so yeah. 100%, yeah, so he shot everything he wanted to shoot. Yeah, everything that's in it is okay, his, right. and it was based on his script. Yeah. Um, I mean, so Orson Welles, if people don't know, he, a, a quick plotted summary of his life, which is almost impossible, but he was a kind of boy genius. He was a painter, he was an actor, he was an everything. And then he got the filmmaking bug and he made Citizen Kane at some insanely young age, like 26 or something, and it's still the benchmark still considered possibly the greatest film of all time, even though he's actually may went on to make better films, I think, which is pretty incredible. And But the, the trajectory of his life really is that he kept on trying to make these projects and he fell out of, you know, the studios thought that he was this kind of crazy maverick genius. They didn't mm. want to finance him anymore. They completely destroyed his second film, cut the ending, reshot it, made it happy. And then he, he flounced off and was like, right, I'm not doing this anymore. And he spent the rest of his life partly as an actor doing various different gigs, doing kind of really demeaning commercials just to try and finance his projects. And that's what he did for the rest of his life. And this is the last big one that everyone talks about. And it was always like, oh, it exists, but it will never come out. And now it's finally out. So what is it? <laughs> that is a good question. Good luck with In this, In two Matt. minutes. Good luck with yeah. this. Well, I mean, it's, it's funny because it's actually not a very complicated story or idea. It's just told in a, a very, very complex way. It is the story of a director, an aging an old dinosaur director from old Hollywood who has basically seen this new wave around him, this kind of the, the new Hollywood, the new wave, and he's gone, no, I still want to be relevant. I'm going to do so. I'm going to do that. I can do that. And we catch him just at the tail end of making this film. Mm. It's all gone tits up. It's, they've lost the money. They've lost the leading guy who's run off in disgust at what they're doing. And a friend of his, an actress, who he may well have had a relationship with in the past, says, I'm going to organize a big party we're going to show the film to investors. We're going to, we're going to see what's there. So watch the rushes and they'll give you more money. And all these people can see how amazing you are. But it doesn't really plan out that way. And then among all the people in that party, there's people, there's a kind of protege of his. There's a film critic. There's a, a, one of the investors. There's all these kind of, there's some real people. Dennis Hopper turns out. Claude Chabrol turns out. All these kind of amazing figures turn up. And really, it's, it's an unusual film because it is, it's shot completely unlike any of his other films. It's way ahead of his time, I think. It's basically like a found footage film. And that's kind of how it's set up. Almost like The Blair Witch, obviously 30 years before The Blair Witch. And the idea is you have... Uh, the film director's died and he's left all these rushes and yep. this, there's all this evidence of what happened on the last day of his life and someone's assembled it all. So, And the, the funny thing is, 
it's very autobiographical or it isn't depending on who you believe but most of the people in it are based on something and most of it is kind of something that might have happened to Orson Welles or was at least inspired by his life Helen what are your thoughts on the other side of the wind so confession <laughs> I've never seen Citizen Kane oh that's alright you've got a treat yeah. coming <laughs> um, so... oh my god <laughs> do you know what Rosebud is before we uh... I do yeah oh. yeah so do you know what it really spoilings. is what, what is it really? <laughs> I don't know. We, are allowed, we said we're allowed to say anything on this. Aren't you? We're allowed to say anything about the other side of the room. We'll talk about what Rosebud okay. really is after, after okay. here, I guess. Um, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, it's quite an ambitious project, I think, for Netflix to have taken on um, this. For someone who has limited um, Orson Welles' experience, um, I found it quite challenging, mm. personally. Um, I get the idea around it. Um, and I, I kind of like how... You know, it has the the missing footage bit in it to give it that authenticity. But um, I don't think I really agreed with it probably <laughs> as much as um, you probably did, Matt. So, uh, yeah. Um, interesting no, no, to no. find out what everyone else thought. Yeah. I think if you're not... I don't think having seen any other Orson Welles films or not would give you any insight as to what this would have been. Um, Iran, what were your thoughts on this? <laughs> I can't, yeah, I sort of, you know, I love Citizen Kane. It's one of my favourite movies of all time. And in very much like the way that he was in real life, Orson Welles, he almost, he almost articulates the fact that he wants you to hate the film. And I very much felt that. He almost is like, you can feel that he's intently trying to make this a difficult film to follow and intently mm. trying to bamboozle you and confuse you. And in many ways, I sort of, yeah, it's so meta. It's so old. It's new. It's so old-fashioned of the time and when they were making movies like Easy Rider. And, yeah. you know, apparently he hated the, the new wave of European cinema. He hated Goddard and he hated Bergman. And he really didn't like that sort of cinema. So he's, in many ways, he was throwing shade on that as, a, as, a, as an art form and trying to be antagonistic. And I think it comes across in the movie. Like, you feel... I sort of felt slightly frustrated with it. I felt that he... He obviously had... An, he was unindated with praise consistently throughout his life for the movies he'd made like Citizen Kane and you can see that with John Hewson's character like at first I was like is this quite so is this like toxic masculinity or these people just praising this man like a godlike figure but then I realized maybe it's part of Orson Welles frustration the way he was consistently praised as a godlike figure when he didn't really feel worthy of it and you can see that reflected in the movie yeah so I felt all of that I did struggle with the film I was kind of there was moments where I was thinking god I'm lucky I'm not watching this when I'm tired <laughs> <laughs> seriously falling asleep but I found it fascinating at first I worried about it when I was watching it because it was so verite and handheld and kind of mixing aspect ratios and stock yeah. and footage that and that beginning sequence where everyone's leaving the studio and heading to the party is actually the most disorientating part of the film. Did you find it? You know, everyone's kind of saying small snippets to camera and it's You've like... You've got the jazz soundtrack. The jazz soundtrack. The and I was like, if this is two hours of this movie, I don't know if I can... <laughs> but then it really mellows out, doesn't it? Once yeah. we kind of get to the party. But I found it fascinating. And I was like... And then suddenly when he showed the movie within a movie, which is very meta, which is kind of like this um, homage to the Bergman-style European cinema... I found the old Orson Welles in those framing, didn't you? I sort of was like, wow, there's Orson Welles because that's what he does in Citizen Kane. And some of that stuff was beautifully shot. And apparently Tarantino and uh, people watched it recently in, in LA and were blown away by the actual movie itself and blown away by some of that stuff. But but yeah, I found it a, a fascinating... Tough, yeah. yeah, it was a, it was a fascinating um, 
sort of kind of sort of construction of his own life and who he was as a man. Because it's, um, it's, it's, it's funny how he said, he's the one that says it's not autobiographical, but everyone else is like, dude, this is yeah. like, this is you. Just like admit it. Well, there's another Netflix film which everyone should watch. If they're going to watch this, they should, I don't know what order would be best. I think probably you'd need to watch this first and then watch the documentary about the making of this film called They'll Love, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. Well, and it's... That comes up if you stay to the end of the credits for me anyway it automatically started playing that yeah, right. it did, yeah. Know, which is a brilliant like uh, Morgan Neville is a, obviously an incredible uh, documentary director anyway but it's a really really I thought it was a fantastic I mean it's it's on a par of the, the other film I'm not I love Orson Welles I wouldn't say this is near the top of my favourite films of his but I'm really glad I saw it and I'd love to watch it again I think it's it's tricky I think it's got so much in it it's like this big stew of ideas mm. not all of which really come out and I don't know whether that's because they would never have come out or whether that's because it's just ended up being this mishmash because it's, it's, that, it's not the whole thing when he's been dead for 25 years something was there in his mind and we still we have no idea if this is how it's going to transmogrify when, yeah. when it finally came down to, to editing it um, you don't know if you might have just taken out 45 minutes of it and gone and that's, that's, sure. that's rubbish yeah. yeah. so this is well I think that's part of the frustration it can is, never yeah. be a closed off auteur yeah. work yeah. because we never know what he actually intended and what his cut would have been yeah. so I think that's part of the frustration when you're watching it that you're saying well this is you know Wes Anderson was involved in the restoration of this film I think Clint Eastwood yeah. like lots of people have had their hands in this so mm -hmm. it's like their interpretation of what they believe this film to be. And I think part of that frustration comes along when you're watching it because you're watching it and you're saying, well, this is a this is this is a this is a variation of what he was trying to get across. But is this the act does this actually mean what yeah. he intended it for it to mean? Yeah. But you know what? So I, I think that of... sort of comes across when you're watching it, a kind of anxious feeling of I quite I don't quite know what the message is here when I'm watching this. But it was fascinating though. Yeah, I but think, I think it's quite I think from my perspective, I kind of feel like the fact that it is it's kind of, it's so meta, like like Iran was saying, that it's kind of the it is the making of it. You're watching it as it's happening and so on, and it is clearly commenting. You know, you have Orson Welles, what his protege was Peter Bogdanovich, who ended up becoming a much more financially and often critically successful director, mm. and he plays exactly that part in the film. And John Huston play, basically plays a kind of variation on various people, but particularly Orson Welles and all this kind of thing. So I think that's I I think it's. You could talk about it and watch it forever and not necessarily settle on one thing. And it's I think, an amazing time capsule of that period right. of filmmaking in Hollywood, though, isn't it? Do you Definitely. know what I mean? Like, well, yeah. this, when I was watching, I was thinking, is, uh, was he trying to make a Russ Meyers film, Russ Meyer type film, just with all the shots and how all the music was playing in the background and very kind of lurid? I mean, the main main actress in the film within the film was like naked for 90% of the time, which, yeah. is, which is a Russ yeah. Meyer story. And it didn't <laughs> seem to f have any kind of flow. But when, as you're saying, Iran, when actually that film of the film started playing out, that's when I could kind of calm down and think, okay, so this is what it's supposed to be. I <laughs> At the start, I was like, I have no idea what's going on here. I didn't, yeah. like I said, the different frame ratios, I thought it was yeah. literally, I think people, I thought literally people had just had their Super 8s and their 16 mils and they were just filming on set and they just like cobbled all this stuff together. Well, I think there's probably an element of that. I think, yeah, sure. definitely an element of that. But there is parallels between... Um, Citizen Kane and this movie and it, that it's a portrait of an enigmatic man who's just died who's just died 
Charlie I mean, the that, there are similarities between that movie, his first film, and this is his final film. 100%. But I find all that fascinating because, as you said in the documentary, all that stuff that he was actually going through, he couldn't finish the film. He was going out there trying to find funding, which is actually happening in the movie. So how much of this was scripted? How much was he just kind of putting in from his real life? We all know that Peter Bogdanovich was the hottest up-and-coming director in Hollywood at the time who plays this young, hot and up-and-coming <laughs> director. You know what I mean? The, the woman who's putting on the party is meant to be Marlene yeah, yeah, which was originally yeah. going to be played by her, yeah. So it's fascinating that it... it. I wondered... How, I do wonder how much of it was scripted. Yeah. How many... What, were there pages on set? Was he... Was it just complete improvisation? Would he just turn up and say, well, this is what I'm going through at this point in my life and I'm just going to pump it into the film uh, yeah, and just put it on question. screen? I don't want... I want I'd be interested to know like how much of it was scripted and how much of it was just on the hoof. Yeah. So, I mean, I love a lot of... I love a lot of what's in there it doesn't feel like it's... It's almost deliberately unpolished. It's not mm. trying to make something that's perfect. And I think there's interviews in the documentary where he's saying, look, I'm not... It's an experiment. I'm not going to... I normally control every frame perfectly. It's just, everything has to be exactly how I imagine it. I'm doing the opposite. I'm just handing out cameras. Everyone's going to shoot it. It's going to be what it is. And so, it's an experiment. So do you think if this was the final, if Orson Welles is like, oh, here's the film? Yeah. What do you think you might have taken from it? Do you think, do you think you're giving it a bit like rose-tinted glasses because... You're thinking, you're thinking that he's well. He's dead now. We can't really do it. So this is the best we've got. For my, you... oh, sorry, go on. I'm, I'm just gonna say, the, the, I think the thing for me, because I've mean, I felt like I'd seen this film before. Just, oh, really? Well, just because I've grown up watching, you know, the films of Wes Anderson, Tarantino, who have obviously stolen, well, homage so much of his style that I kind of felt that I, I get how meta it is. But I did feel as though I'd kind of seen this before, but obviously in a different way. And from this, I was I kept thinking about the Jordan Peele quote about how he would never cast a white person in in a movie because he's seen that movie before. Right. And I was watching this going, I've kind of seen this movie. And it sort of said to me that we are watching this finished and kind of, you know, sort of sealed off and as a finished piece is almost like the end of the auteur. Right. And that we're entering a really different period of filmmaking where, you know, you've got the old Oscars going, oh, we can't have a Netflix film, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then you've got Netflix going, yeah, sure, we're going to give you this money to make this movie for us, you know, do what you want. Mm. And for me, it's it's really interesting that they picked this one up yeah. to finish it. And what they're doing on on the other side with their kind of sort of bigger blockbuster things is really interesting. And then they've got this at the other side. But yeah, I just kind of felt, you know, I've seen this film before. It's I think of... they, they chose it because it's a piece of history though, isn't it? It's a mm. piece of history that, should it have been finished? What are your thoughts on that? Should it have been? Do you reckon it should have been I, I completed? 100%. Do you think Orson Welles would have wanted that? Do you think? Well, I, I, it's hard to, hard to say because it, it's not the only one of his films that wasn't finished. And he would, and he was accused by various people of saying, "Well, actually, you just you you kind of you get into the middle of a project, you lose your interest in it, mm. you're a bit of a dilettante. Actually, you can't. There's an element of self destruction, and 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 it's, it's partly deliberate, which I think is unfair from anyone else you talked to. I think he was desperate to try and get these films made, but I think from his perspective, it's just it's hard to say, isn't it? But you know, from a viewer's perspective, from a fan's perspective, I'm so glad I've finally seen it, yeah. and I think I would get something out of it every time I I watch it, and I'd love to." 
watch the documentary again now and then go back and watch the film. I think uh, I need to see the documentary again yeah, before I've, seeing the film. Yeah, the documentary is fascinating, that, yeah. Have, had I watched that as well or maybe watched it before, then I would have got quite a bit from it. Yeah. Even though while I was watching it, I did, Steve, you know, Wikipedia it and read a lot more about it. So I kind of got everything about it and how, you know, this person was perhaps this real person yeah. and it echoed his life, etc. So I got that. I mean, while I was watching it, I was thinking, are there any examples of films that have been finished off by directors that have passed away? So I kept thinking about like artificial intelligence and yeah. something like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it should have been yeah, left. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Kubrick finished um, yeah. Eyes Wide Shut before he died? Was that just, 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 just yeah. finish it? Yeah, just before But apparently... Am I right in saying that? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure. So he, the the famous unfinished projects he had, he had AI, he had that other film, the kind of the Holocaust drama that. Is this Kubrick? Gonna, Is it Kubrick? Yeah. yeah, and then he was gonna. He was about to start shooting, or he was thinking of about shooting next, and then and then uh, Spielberg was suddenly released Schindler's List. And he was like, I can't do that film anymore. Mm. And his famous, famously, the. Um, Is that the one about the clown? The. Uh, no, no, I don't, don't think so. Right, no. Uh, no, I think it's for the Aryan Papers. And then there's, and then there's another one. Uh, where he was so he was obviously going to do Napoleon was his big thing. He was going to do Jack Nicholson, and then they couldn't do it at the last minute, and then someone else ended up making it. And apparently, um, Kerry Fukunaga was doing that. They're going oh, to nice. do it with his original script, so someone will actually be, not even you know, I guess doing the Spielberg route of taking the script, yeah. and then somehow doing it themselves. Well, Kerry Fukunaga is fantastic. Oh, it's uh, amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, if anyone's going to do it. Like that. But I, yeah, I think it's 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 difficult, isn't it? Because I I just it's a bit like people, when people say, "Oh, you've ruined the book by making a bad film," or "Why did you remake this French classic?" And you it's like, well, just go back to the original. You don't have to. You can put your fingers in your ears. If you don't if you don't want to watch the other side of the wind, you don't have to. But I'm glad someone has. Here's something I kept thinking about when I was watching it, and I was thinking about you being an editor because <laughs> obviously I, know, I was thinking about you being an editor. I know you're an editor because obviously the, the speed of the cuts was quite quick yeah. and you couldn't have managed that back then on those old no, steam you're right. yeah, you know, yeah. on the old editing system yeah. the speed with which they were cutting with but the he did though because he'd already cut 30% of it had he so yeah. with like the speed of how those cuts were because they were like one second that's cuts. the stuff I saw yeah. some of the, yeah. right, right, some of the cuts were like go to black and white Four by Academy ratio, go yeah. to them four widescreen in colour. Yeah, and yeah. Go to, like, went, it would chop between four different cameras within like the space of a minute. I and mean, he's light years ahead of his time. And I, so he was way ahead of his time, what he was trying to that, achieve. And not only that, but apparently, so um, so his his partner is, is the naked woman in the film, mm. the actress, um, Oya Koda. She basically, apparently, you know, back 20 years ago or 10 years ago, whenever she was trying to get this film off up off the ground again, it must have been about 20 years ago. She showed it to a bunch of Hollywood directors and apparently she showed it to Oliver Stone. He was like, I like that. <laughs> and then used it on every film since. So from JFK onwards, that thing of you're in... Yeah, you're especially Natural Born Killers. It's yeah, got right. all those mixture of stocks and aspect ratios and I stuff. I think she got quite like, pissed off. It was like, whoa, 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 hang on. <laughs> Do you think it would have been a hit back then if he'd have released it, if he'd have got to release it? Because I was thinking now, if you look at the reviews, everyone's praising it as a yeah. masterpiece. And when he, because he was going through his toughest period, he'd been in exile for 20 years. Yeah. Do you think it would have been a hit back then? I think he, I don't think it would have been. No, I think he would have been not. destroyed for that yeah. film. And he only now would have been reflecting on it and saying, oh, it was a masterpiece all along and he was way ahead of his time. Yeah. And it was, this it's is not a bitter tap. film, but it's pretty savage. It yeah. is against the industry. Yeah. yeah. I don't think people, I don't think Hollywood tends to love films that say how shit Hollywood is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Love, Traditionally. love films that love Hollywood yeah. and, and acting. Yeah, M. Night Shyamalan, when he put a critic against Savage in uh, <laughs> Lady in the Water, like all the critics they went through. I'm not buying this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't think um, I would be surprised if it was anyone's favourite film of all time. Oh, but sure. I think it's I think it's fantastic. I think I would love 
I'd love to keep on watching it at different stages of my life. I think I'd get something out of it each time. It's fascinating that I heard that Tarantino watched it recently or last a couple of years ago with Ryan Johnson. And then because it is very much about Hollywood and Los Angeles and now his next film is Once Upon a Time right. in Hollywood. And, you know, it's about filmmaking and yeah. being in that, that environment at that time and yeah. specifically in that period of... Um, who directed the uh, Who directed Chinatown? Roman Polanski yeah, yeah, sure. and all that kind of era. Yeah, so it's of course, one, it must have had a massive influence on him. I and that stars John Huston as well. He plays quite a similar character in some ways. Yeah, yeah, quite a kind of, yeah it's true. Yeah, I, it's, I mean, it's there are issues with it. I think I would definitely say you know watching it and there is a okay, yes, it's a, a willing participant in the film <laughs> who actually co-wrote it, but there were a naked woman who walks all the way through it, and there's another <laughs> another female critic gets smacked in the face at the end and so on. Let's say there are certain issues. Yeah, there were serious things. I'm not denying any of that. Um, I mean, like you said, it's you a kind of... You couldn't without a massive uproar, could you? You can no, do... No, 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 probably no. not. Probably it made not. me think about how kind of misogynistic that whole period of time was yeah. in filmmaking well, that's what and how everyone that, making the decisions at the studios is male-driven and yeah. him and how he was... That's what I was thinking about the Russ Meyer kind of thing. You, you would not have that kind of film. No. That no. kind of director just every single film would be naked women walking around for no, no particular reason. I mean, he is spoofing. On the one hand, he's kind of spoofing Antonioni and so on, but mm. he is also having his cake and eating it. He's <laughs> yeah, just like, yeah. oh, here's a naked woman for 50% of the film. He's spoofing it because he's enjoying it. <laughs> uh, before we go to the scores, Iran, um, you've worked within the Netflix system. Can you kind of get a, kind of an idea of why they thought we need to make this? Was it just like restoring art history in a way or...? Um... I think so, yeah. I think that... I don't think it would have happened without them. No. I think they tried to have a GoFundMe page for the project. And I think those sort of Clint Eastwood and Wes Anderson, the people that got behind it trying to get funding to get it made. Sure. I think it's an important part of cinema history. I think Cineas will love it. Uh, you know, I, it, it wasn't exactly my cup of tea, but, you know, and I'm somebody who loves film. I, I sort of struggled with it. I found it fascinating. Like, a, it almost was a caption in time. It was fascinating to watch that you... It kind of, in many ways, when you like watch a program like Mad Men and you kind of get an impression of what it must have been like to work, you must have get an impression of what it must have been like to be in the 70s when everyone was doing acid and smoking weed at parties and just getting out of their faces and <laughs> orgies or whatever was going on. You kind of get the feeling of yeah. what the, that energy must have been. But, um, and I think it's important that Netflix did it. I think it's, yeah, fair play to them because I think it would have just... Yeah. sat on a shelf forever yeah. and ever beyond that and never would have got to see it. and at least people can sit and reflect on it and talk about it and be but here now I think it shows the breadth of what Netflix does which is kind of I think you know they that if you go onto the main page obviously it's changing every five minutes but I think you would <laughs> you would see obviously it'll, it'll push bigger films yeah. or from that scene it seems to be the way even though I, I, tend, I don't always watch those kind of films or not exclusively, those are the kind of films that come up. But if you're a bit more inventive about the way you look around it, the kind of stuff, when, when you asked us on, and I thought, okay, what films can we find? There's some incredible films there if you just look a little bit harder. Because I've had people say, oh, there's nothing on Netflix. I'm like, no, there really? really is. There is. <laughs> yeah. Just, I mean, just scratch a little bit further. For sure. And they always complain, oh, the American Netflix is so much better. You know, but like there's thousands of yeah. films on the UK Netflix. I'm sure you can find something you exactly. can watch every day of the week if you just like thought like slightly. Slightly differently. But, so, you know, uh, with the best will in the world, I like like Iran says, I can't imagine any anyone else on the planet no, having funded this film. And I'm so glad they did. And that's why I think um, 
Netflix is is an important part. And I was, I mean, I was personally gutted that Roma didn't win the Oscars. Right. Um, yeah. And it seems that like the backlash is people were against Netflix for like, how dare you? How dare Netflix yeah. put money behind a film that maybe a that's major awesome. studio that's might so not have done? Yeah, yeah. yeah like the, the Scorsese's new film, for example. It's called The Irishman. It's yeah, called it's The Irishman. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, apparently that struggled to get financing for a long time. Yeah. And no one was going to make that kind of gangster epic at that budget anymore. And Netflix came on and so we would never be watching that. So, you know, you may whatever you may think of the film when it comes out, we would never be getting the opportunity to watch, to watch it or it. see it or have all those actors coming back together again because yeah. studios just aren't making those movies out there at the cinema at the moment and people like Netflix are, so I think we need to appreciate that. Okay, let's uh, head to the scores for The Other Side of the Wind. So welcome to the uh, spreadsheet of dreams. Now, all the scores are out of five. It's an actual spreadsheet. You're not just making this up. This no, is real. This is pretty amazing. Yep. Wow. Um, Guys, you make, you make like feats like films. films. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a simple spreadsheet is not that amazing. I've never made a spreadsheet. <laughs> I mean, this is beautiful. I'll, I'll, I'll teach you one day. My mind is blown. I'm lost. I don't know what's going on right now. I'm staring at an Excel spreadsheet. Figures, numbers. This is confusing. There's uh, the other side of the wind. <laughs> All out of five, you may have decimal places, and we will start with you, Matt, with the recommendability score. Please. Well, this is—I've—I've I've had to have a big head scratcher out on this because it's like my—I, at the end of the day, I will recommend. I've stopped trying to recommend things to people and thinking like, oh well, I know the kind of person you are, mm. therefore I will recommend this to you because partly it's pointless, and also it's like, no, I want people to push themselves a bit. So I'm going to say five out of five, oh, even wow. though I know most people will hate it. <laughs> <laughs> Because I'm perverse and I'm a bastard. It's funny because I think I have the same opinion as you. I think that people, it's important to watch. Yeah. You ha I think if you, it's important to watch if you or somebody's into cinema and you're into the history of cinema. And it's, it's, it, it's a historical moment in, in film history that it's been brought out and put together by Netflix and restored. Um, so I would say a five out of five that you should sit down but if it was my wife sitting next to me, I know that she would say, well, this is bullshit. I, when I tried to take her to see Tree of Life, she said, I am never going to cinema with you ever again. I was like, what are you talking about? This is a masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think she would definitely be giving it a one to two, but I'm going to give it a five out of five. Like, Come, yeah. on. Come on. That's All right. it. Come on, awesome Wales. Come on. Uh I, I'm not it's going to be a five, isn't it? it a five, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, I, I, I do think it is a really, really interesting piece. Um, but the fact that all of the footage is in there and it comes in over two hours is quite a slog. And I mean, I, I kind of got what was happening and I kind of got, you know, this is really clever that he was making this kind of film before it was a thing to make yeah. this kind of film. I, I got that. Repeatedly, sure. <laughs> for two hours, yeah. you can definitely um, get up and make a cup of tea while you're this film, and come back, and you're still, yeah, I mean, I it's fed, still in safety. Yeah, like, like, do a little bit of work. This. Can't believe you're saying that. <laughs> Whittle something out of wood, and it's still <laughs> oh, Austin's spinning in his grave. Um, and I do, do you think there is there is a very big audience for it, as you've you've clearly illustrated, and I, I think anyone who is interested in filmmaking will probably get a lot more out of it. Um, and I do think it's a really historical piece, but I think somewhere between the two, this and the documentary, I would have found a bit more satisfying and, and got a bit more out of it. So I'm going to give it a three. But isn't that what's fascinating about, I think that's when, when we and you were growing up and we're at university, that's what movies used to be. Mm. Like you, if you had to go and get DVDs, we wouldn't just seek out 
Die Hard or Lethal Weapon. Oh, you we would, would go and get... Re- no, you know, but I, well, I would. I would, yeah. I know that I would, but we're coming on to that film now. Like, but um, I know that... But you would go and seek out really difficult kind of art house cinema and it wouldn't, it wouldn't always be a, an easy, you know, an easy watch and you would have to sort of kind of push yourself through it. But it was important to form those opinions about this as an art form. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, understand no. what you didn't like and what you did like. So I think it's important that places like Netflix have the the bright with Will Smith or you have the other side of the wind. Do you know what I mean? You have that the sort of distinction between the two because... I think that's an interesting point you make about going to the video shop because I was never one... Obviously, I went and got my Independence Day when it first came out on on the, you know, on the first day it came yeah, out yeah. in the UK. But I was always there like speaking to the guys like, dude, so what should I watch? And there's like... What about you to Mama Tambien? It's like Spanish. <laughs> and then I got it. It's like, yeah, fucking hell, give me some more of that stuff. Yeah. Well, I, my my history was I my dad used to get Empire magazine and mm, I right. would kind of look through all the sort of four and five star reviews, regardless of what they were, and try and look out for them on, you know, film four and yeah. things like that. And, you know, I watched some right weird shit. It's like, <laughs> well, you know, Empire gave it five stars, so I need to watch this yeah. and, you know, sit through all kinds of weird stuff. And then the same at uni as well and watch that. So, you know, I, I have sat through a lot of films, but I, I, I just kind of got this and it just... No, I'm saying it's, yeah, yeah. I'm saying it's a testament because Helen and I are on the same film quiz team. Yeah. And I think everyone around that table has come from... They've had a background of like... They're like the Marvel stuff. Yeah, But sure. they also like a very kind of niche kind of aspect of, of filmmaking that a lot yeah. of people, if you just stop to run a person in the street, they'd be like, um, I'm going to see Transformers yeah. when that comes out. But and I think it's not... I mean, I have the same attitude to... I've got quite eclectic taste, like a lot of my friends in mm. everything. So like in music... I'm, I think when I was growing up, people tended to be quite tribal. Yeah. And it seems to be less so. The only thing is, now that everything's instantly accessible, I've got, you know, five billion, access to five billion tracks on my iPod, and I still listen to the same three albums. And and I think there's a danger with that happening with film, where we really, I guess what we we were saying before, is that you're seeking out films. And I know that, okay, well, I've got got to see that, I've read about this film, and then two years later, it would appear on TV, and I'd watch it, and I'd finally see it. You know, whereas now... I can watch anything I want to pretty much within reason. Yeah. And I don't. That's part yeah, of having young kids. BBC Two, when I was a kid, like, you know, we had to tune in your channel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you'd get Jonathan Ross presenting some sort of obscure martial arts film from the 1970s, like, with vampire zombies. And I'd be like, and I formed part of my aesthetic off of that stuff, of who I wanted to become mm. as a filmmaker from those kind of... But you wouldn't... Obscure... Tell- yeah, yeah, Hong Kong action film. Yeah, or moving pictures, or you'd have uh, yeah, Mark Cousins. Movie or drone. Yeah, movie yeah. Drone, yeah, but yeah, moving yeah. pictures as well was the was the other one that had. Was that had sure. They, anyway, whoever was fronting it was, it had this. Um, uh, what was lovely is you, a bit like you were saying about the the documentary that you were kind of briefed, so they would have the film, they would yeah. introduce it, they'd tell you things to look out for, and then you'd watch it, or you could do it the other way around. But I I love that because it was the only education. Well, that's what that we had. So Mark then. Cousins like brought me up in film a lot as well, and yeah, yeah. he'd introduced like Lane to me, and then yeah, days confusing the same like double bill. I was like, I love this kind of curation, but this is going to actually lead into my score. I'm going to go lower than you, Helen. I'm going to go for like a two here, actually. <gasps> oh, Kobe! Um, I thought we were mates. <laughs> Cobes, <laughs> drop the mic. Everyone calls me Cobalino. Cobalino. <laughs> no one's ever called me Cobalino. Um, but I, it's because I would have to like sit someone down and like school them yeah. as to why I think this would be an interesting film. Yeah, you're film. right. Yeah, yeah. Even if it was someone who I think was kind of cinematic, would be like, okay, so this is what happened. 25 years in the making, yeah. when he died, and all that, I would have to like really like sell it to them. Yeah. Um, and then I'd probably say, actually, watch the documentary a bit. Yeah. And then come back to this film because then it would it, it, type and make more sense. Yeah. So because I'd have to do all that that preamble before like saying press play I, that's why I find it hard to 
Um, Depends on whether you want your mates recommend. still to be your mates after they've seen it. If you don't care like me, then you just no, recommend it anyway. Yeah, they like, might not ask you I again. like keeping my mates, my mates, you know, so I'm going <laughs> to... <laughs> I've, got, I've got kids and family now. I don't you need don't mates care, anymore. Yeah. Just me and Iran. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> who's a kid and family? <laughs> yeah, exactly all in one. Uh, repeat viewing score, Matt. I, well, I mean, I might be mad, but I would watch this many, many times to come. In fact, I've just fancy because I watched it last night mm. and I was obviously cramming, like I was cramming before an exam. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I've left it this late. So I watched it. Sure. That wasn't the ideal circumstance. I'd love to go back and rewatch it because I think there's so many scenes, like you said, it's cut so fast. The scene, it's almost like, an, it's just this experience that it's like a wave that overwhelms you. Yeah. You can't possibly absorb everything that it's doing at the same time. If you had, I reckon if you had a party in Shoreditch, a really cool <laughs> hipster party, it's the sort of thing you'd project. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 it's yeah. One, of those, one of those films that'd be really cool just to project. Yeah. So we go, oh yeah, that's awesome. Where's the movie? Yeah, I just had it all. What are you saying about me? I'm just saying, that's, <laughs> I know you're a bit of a hipster wanker. That was... <laughs> it's fair enough. But I would, no, I would watch that many, many times. But again, I'd watch the documentary as well. I might need breaks in between. I wouldn't necessarily watch them back to back sure. or watch it, you know, every night for a week. So how does that translate to a score out of five? <laughs> five. It's got to be five, surely. <laughs> Mate, you just hit the hard fives in this. Yeah. <laughs> Unless uh, I can go higher. You're right. I'll probably go for a three on this because I, I don't know if I would sit for it again because it, I think it's important to sit for it and watch it and get have and form an opinion about it. I do think it's the sort of thing that if my mates come over, I just stick it on the high def telly and have it playing at a party. You go, yeah. oh yeah, that old number. It's just it's just always the world's <laughs> restored last movie. But I, I, I'll give it a three. Ellen, uh, I'm going to give it a one. <gasps> oh, I'm, I'm not going to give it a zero because um, I did have a moment when the documentary started playing. I was like. Oh, we weren't meant to watch this instead. I um, did that as well. I was like, I, was like, I, don't, I checked the email. Like, definitely watching this and not the documentary. Because if not, I've just wasted two hours. Anyway, <laughs> so I am interested to watch the documentary now and kind of feel a little bit more. I think you'll find it. the documentary fascinating if you watch mm -hmm. it. I think it's, I would have liked to have watched it first and then watched the documentary. So I think I'm jealous that you're going to get a chance to do that. <laughs> um, I'm going to go, I'm going to go uh, two here. I think I really want to watch the documentary. And one thing I really love about sometimes when we come to the studio like it's happened today is when someone brings the film and explains it and gives more context and substance to it. Um, sometimes just come into a studio recording. Helps, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so what happened? Sadly yeah. didn't happen tonight. Uh, that's that's right, what happened. So that's what oh, okay, about. okay. <laughs> it is a better film than I thought. Um, so I probably, I'd like to watch the documentary. That's definitely going to happen. And then watch this again, maybe like a few months, a year down the line yeah. and like kind of go, okay, I can see how this was put together. And also with like Citizen Kane, when I was showing it at school, I was like, oh, this is black and white, isn't it? <laughs> um, but then when someone explains to you like what all the things he did that's amazing with his Steadicam footage and the camera angles, which just didn't happen before, then you kind of think, oh, okay, that's why this is like legit awesome. So I think sometimes you need that context to make you appreciate a film. For sure. That said, I don't think I'm going to watch it that much. Yeah. Um, so that, I'm going to... It's yeah. over two hours. Yeah. It's a, and I, yeah, we I'm are very time poor. We're living in a time poor age. Yeah. You're right. Maybe you watch it on fast forward. Is that an option on Netflix? You can't watch it faster now. No, okay. I've tried. Uh, speed. <laughs> <laughs> small Ouch. speed score. What was it? The small well, I, I wouldn't. It's funny because I, I wouldn't. In the past, I would always try and watch anything on as big a screen as possible. Mm. There are some films. I mean, I did see someone watching, I think it was The Godfather last year on their phone. And I was yeah. like, I really hope that's not the first time you're watching that. Pick the phone up and throw it. Yeah. On the other hand, there's something about watching things on, on a phone, like if you know them a bit better. So I, I don't know. I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't watch. There's so much going on in every single frame. Mm. I wouldn't watch it for the first time. 
on a phone, but I wouldn't, I think I might revisit it because it might even be the kind of film that you want to watch in half hour chunks or something because you're right, it's exhausting to I watch. I think Orson Welles would have been like a Soderbergh. I think he would have yeah. been making stuff for phones now yeah. if he was still alive. You know, just kind of trying out all doubt all different formats and yeah. experimented with the form. I think he would have been into watching it on the phone. But he's kind of ahead of his time also thinking that every single person, when if people haven't seen the film, every single person in the film apart from the main guy is filming everyone else. Mm. And that's kind of what we're doing yeah, now. Really just had everyone filming it on phones now. If you yeah, remember, I think you're right. So I think he kind of... So he liked experimenting, yeah. How's that work to a small screen? Well... So what's the what's the vibe with the small screens? Is it so, like the first time you watch it or just, just ever? Just ever. Well, if you think like Roma, for example, for us, it was like... That's tricky. I would love to have seen it on a bigger screen. Yeah, so that was a low small yeah. screen. Right, yeah. right, right, right. be the big screen. Oh, no, I don't think that's such, a, such an issue with this. I'd say three, okay. maybe. You're on. Yeah, I'd go back for three. I'll stick it at that. I won't go. Nice. I won't go for two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Helen? Um, I'm, I'm going to give it a four. I th think... Obviously, when he was making this film, he wanted this to be seen on the cinema, at the cinema, on the big screen. Um, but I, I think it works in the fact that it's not on that bigger screen. Um, just because, you know, we're so used to documentary-style footage now that mm. watching it on your screen is fine. Mm. And also, you know, this is the place where you can go and see it because it's not on at the cinema anymore. And that if you want to go and see it, unless you're very lucky and have a very, very big TV, then you're you're only going to really be watching it on kind of laptop or TV size. Mm. Um, I'm going to go for a two and a half here. And this is going to tie in with the engagement score. I just think if I was in the cinema, I think I would have like yeah. absorbed it more. Yeah. Uh, not that I think the, the, the visuals would have been that much better or enticing, but I think I would have just been like, let it envelop me a bit more. Um, but I think, I think it yeah. ties in with the I engagement think you're right, side. I think, because when, when I was working in LA last year, there was um, Tarantino's got a cinema, the Beverly Cinema on Beverly Boulevard, isn't it? It's on Beverly, Beverly Boulevard, yeah. isn't it? So when you used to go and watch his like, 35mm prints, mm. even if you didn't like the film that much, there was something about being in an audience. Tarantino would often be there at the back of the cinema watching it. And I can imagine that if... He, I, I've got a feeling he might show this sure. film at yeah, his yeah. cinema. And I can imagine being in a, in a cinema room with loads of cinema fans and just I think people be whooping and cheering it on and getting drunk and it'd be a completely different experience yeah. sort of movie and quite in, in a dark room and just completely enveloped in that kaleidoscopic feel of the film I Definitely. think it'd be quite involving no it's going to be amazing to see on a bigger screen for sure it's one of those things isn't it that um, because films are so on demand that there may be in the future a generation that have never had that experience and right. their only film watching will be you know sitting with a laptop, flicking through films, stopping ones they don't want, and never have had that kind of shared experience or, you know, the experience of sort of sitting there for the first half an hour and it'd be slightly out of focus until someone's <laughs> yeah. waiting for the guy to kind of shift it and things like that. So it's, you know, are we going to see a complete shift where there will be no cinemas? I really hope not. I mean, I can imagine they might do things, you know, you could have... They had these goggles in Japan where you stick on like a VR headset effectively, but this was pre-VR. And it gave, it was an optical illusion. So whatever you were watching, it just felt like it was further away on a big screen, but apparently it, it was screwed with people's minds. Sure. It actually probably sent a couple of people to hospital, so they, they gave up on that. But you could still have communal, you know, the same way that people play, obviously play computer games at the same time. I imagine you could do that. You'll tune in at the same time and you sit there, so at least you could hear each other laughing. I went to see... For the first, so my, yeah, my wife's away. So I went to go to the cinema the other day for the first time on my own in 
decades. And it was, and I, I was like, oh, I really like doing this. What do you, what did you watch? We went to see um, Us. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Which is a good one to watch on your own. Yeah. Without someone sitting next to you or hide. It was, it was just, I was just in the zone. I sure. was, and also she likes to sit on the back row and I like to sit in the front row. And so we always sit in the middle and neither of us are happy. So it's <laughs> you like, like to sit in the front row? Compromise. Like sit in the front. Close, man. No, <laughs> you're in the film. I watched The Wrestler bike with Mickey Rourke <laughs> on the front row and I felt sick. I was Most so handheld. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go middle, middle. i go middle. Middle, middle. I don't want to see anyone else's heads. I just want to be, I'm in it. Let's go to the engagement score. Um, so yeah, how engaged were you whilst watching it? How we? But I don't think you have any, uh, for me anyway, I don't know. I mean, I was, I'd been waiting 25 years to watch it. So I was pretty, <laughs> I was pretty fucking engaged. And also I just, you don't, it's a kind of battering ram of a film and you might not like that. Yeah. People might find that too much, but I, you have no choice but to be engaged. You can switch it off. That's the only way not to be engaged by it because something is always, always happening. And it's funny starting out directing. I, mean, I love, we were saying like, you know, you get into, you, we've all got quite eclectic tastes in film now, but I, I, the films that kind of inspired me, the way that I wanted to move the camera, the way it was kind of filmmakers like Orson Welles or like, um, or like Martin Scorsese, kind of people who come up to you and they want to tell you a story and they grab you and they kind of, they're like a kind of drunk in a bar. He's like, I'm going to tell you the story. I love Jim Jarmusch and I love Ozu and I love all these other people who are just like, here's the frame. I'm not going to tell you what to look at. Mm. But that's not the kind of film, those aren't the kind of films that I wanted to make. And I felt very much like this is that kind of film. It's the kind of film. And I remember, weirdly, I must, I can't have seen that documentary about it that had those couple of clips from The Other Side of the Wind in 20 years probably. But I had it on a VHS and I must have watched it endlessly. And I just remember seeing those clips and thinking, God, that is actually how I've ended up cutting a lot of things subconsciously. So it's been, yeah, so I must be gay, so I'd have to give it five. Because it's, <laughs> it's actually affected how you do your work. It has. I've, nicked, I've been nicking things off it for years without realising. Uh, Iran? I'll give it a four because I struggled with the beginning mm. and then I kind of, halfway through, I started to really get into it. And then by the end, I was fully immersed. I was kind of really into it and kind of fully immersed. And I love that scene, by the way, where the the girl gets into the car with yeah, the two guys. That's it's amazing. It's a really surreal sort of Tarantino-esque so, sequence. It goes so on odd, about seven it? minutes. Yeah. It's really odd, but I found it weirdly mesmerising. Not because of the nudity, obviously. <laughs> that <laughs> the sequence. But I thought it was really beautifully shot. I was yeah. like, it would, it would have been how Tarantino would shoot something like that now. Like, In that know, BBC, I'll send you a link to the BBC documentary. You can see it's a bunch of students. He's just got a bunch of students. They're all like 18 years old. Mm -hmm. And he's like in his late 60s or early 70s or something. And he... Has got them all rocking the, the car, and you can see he's them just got shooting hoses it. of water and running it's like torches past, isn't it? You see yeah. all that in the documentary, just running torches past, and not really so good. Oh, okay. driving down the road. Yeah, they kind of you just had them rocking the car, but stunning. There was something about it that, yeah, it just what stock do you reckon all that movie within the, within the movie? It felt like it was like 75 mil or something. It, it was like really plush, isn't it? It's very, yeah, it's got this real green. No, this is great. That's why we've got directors on to talk about directors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because all that stuff looked really high Stunning. definition. And when the yeah. movie within the movie, you could even see the makeup on her nose. Yeah. And then like within the black and white stuff, it was really grainy and gritty and you couldn't tell what was going on. Yeah. But that stuff, I felt like you, it looked like it could have been shot yeah. Yesterday, like that, yeah. you know what I mean? It was quite amazing. But. It's funny because even I think I guess even when he's pastiching something, he obviously has kind of slightly fallen in love with it despite himself. And then he's, I mean, it's a sizable chunk of the film. If you're just doing a pastiche, like you said, you could have done that in two shots. If you just wanted to kind of, I'm trying to think of other films that have done that where you stick in a kind of film within a film. Even like yeah. Mr. Bean's done that. <laughs> in the documentary, they talk about that whole sequence in the car when she gets into the car with the That's two guys. Right. Okay. They talk about it quite in depth and... I did find that for me, that was the point in the film that I found myself drawn into it and being completely pulled into the yeah. movie. And then from Imagine that point Imagine seeing that on the big screen. That yeah, that would have been quite amazing. So I, could, I think like when they said that Tarantino and people like um, Ryan Johnson were gobsmacked by it, I think it was those moments. Yeah. Like, wow, some of this is really... Yeah. 
cool. It's nuts. I mean, you don't see films like that now. You didn't definitely didn't see them back then, but you don't even see films like that now. And I feel like, I mean, I started off by saying this, but I think in some ways when you see, you know, you, you read interviews with Walter Merck and other people like that, who he was talking about how our, our understanding of editing, even the process of editing, it's such an unusual thing to do because obviously we don't edit in real life apart from when we blink. But the idea of, he was saying that the way that we, you know, you, you can write music, so you can annotate music and, and someone else can understand it, but we don't even have any process to do that for film yet with editing or anything like that. And he, he said, we're really at the kind of hieroglyphic stage and we, none of us know what's going to happen next. And maybe it's going to be a more immersive thing and we're going to have VR headsets and then you'll be guided on a thing, but maybe you'll just be, it'll be much more immersive. I, I, it's so hard to tell, but I feel like Orson Welles is one of those people who was light years ahead and people haven't followed that path, you know, but they should. I hope it inspires other people to pick up cameras and try something similar or something different. Uh, Helen, engagement score. It's going to be a low one, I can feel it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, two and a half. That's quite high. It's highly yeah. expected. Yeah. I thought you were going to go for one. Um, yeah, I mean, there were, there were moments that I, I think really kind of stood out, like the, the car scene, and but there was just a lot of it that really could have been cut. For me, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm kind of with you. I don't, I don't, I'm not disagreeing with anything you said. I, I don't. I don't think it's perfect by any stretch of the imagination. I feel it's a shame. I would have loved. There's so many ideas and themes in there. I would have mm. loved just to dwell on a couple. And I would have thought it. It was so relentless and fidgety in the editing style and the shooting style. It's just, it could just calm down at moments. I wanted to hear from John Huston. It had those. Even those moments were pretty hectic. And I just. I felt like that it could have explored some of them more. Yeah, and also it's. I watched it on Sunday afternoon and it was kind of light and sunny outside yeah. and it's just all those things that kind of add to, you know, your experience and this is about the engagement, so. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go for a touch. I'm just going to go for a three there, I think. Um, I think like yourself around a, at the start, I was like, uh, I'm not sure I can, I've got other <laughs> things to do right now. <laughs> but then it was like, yeah, it kind of built in there. I did hammer washing up. <laughs> um, at the same that's, time that's all part of the process isn't it? Um, I'm sure Orson would be fine with that I think he'd be fine with that it's like <laughs> he knows I need my clothes for the, for the Monday um, that gives us an overall score of 3.3 3, uh, which is actually pretty decent yeah. higher than I thought it was going to be yeah. before, before heading in it's helped here. by some solid fives yeah. along the way <laughs> some <laughs> fives and Matt I'm like yeah. rig dropping hard fives can I, can I, ch I can't change it. Those other ones back to five. Can I know? It's too late now. It's, it's in, it's in, you can't up the score now, mate. Indelible spreadsheets. Also, um, never forgive me. Can you guys sign up by letting us know where we can find you online or, you know, what films you to watch of yours? Um, I am, well, so we, yeah, we're working on this boxing thing that I'm apparently not allowed to talk about because I've got lots of, the, I've sent lots of scary looking documents sure. that I've never worked well, on. I don't want you to be like beaten up, so. <laughs> but I, yeah, I'm I'm on Twitter sometimes, uh, Matt with one T, Whitecross, and I am my, the company that I've got with Fiona Nielsen, my producer is uh, mint-pictures.com, so that's going to be online somewhere. Cool. All right. Yeah, I uh, keep my social media usage to a minimum and have private accounts because I used to be on Twitter and then got myself in some serious trouble back in the day when I tweeted something about Matthew Vaughan, who was represented by my same agent. And I was like, and then I got a phone call from my agent saying, you better get your, that down off Twitter now, man. Otherwise your career is over. Is like, right? God damn, I better get this down. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, I, I tweeted. So it was something that was in the press that day and I just made a comment on it. And it was about two directors that were represented by the same agency to me. And then I got 
phone call. My phone was just blowing up saying, man, you need to get that tweet down. You're going to be sued. And I was like, oh, God. Then from that on, I was like, you know what? This is too much of a dangerous platform. So I kind of keep my accounts private just for family and stuff. But I am just, I'm currently in the process of uh, pre-production on the follow-up to Shifty. Yeah. My first film, which is, uh, it's called The Bright Side. And it's the same town, but a different bunch of, a different set of characters. Nice. The script uh, is incredible. Yeah, it's Matt, amazing. I'd say about the script the other day. Um, Various projects. I have been developing a big TV project in the States at the moment with um, uh, Jackson Pictures. Um, just sold one of my scripts, action scripts to E1 called The Queen's Guard, which is like a big sort of action movie script. Yeah. So we should link to you, both both you guys on IMDb, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah, I mean, we're hoping to do some stuff together as well. Yeah, me and Matt are developing a, a big... TV project together, aren't we, at the moment? We're yeah. sort of thinking about getting back together and working together. Nice. Come, and come and knock on Netflix's door at some point. Yeah. yeah. See if they'll talk to us. We were really, actually, you know what? Not, not cynically, but we were really nice about Netflix because I do think they're brilliant. So if you if you fancy making something with us, then, you know, the door's always open. <laughs> yeah. All right, guys. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks Thank you. Pleasure. Us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Flixwatcher Podcast. Leave us your five-star review on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at FlixWatcherPod. And if you aren't already, get yourself subscribed. Cheers, Brendan, for your fantastic editing skills. Really, really appreciate it. And cheers to everyone, all the mighty people, for the tunes that you can hear right now. <laughs> <laughs>